Sometimes I like to begin uh, talks by chanting the homage to the Buddha. So I'm going to do that tonight. You can just listen or you can join in. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Bodam damang sangham namasami. Some of you uh, did a little bit of talking this afternoon, I think. It's always interesting after a period of, long period of uh, mostly being in silence when we begin talking. And I think sometimes that's when we find out how quiet we've been. And we see the, uh, the effect of talking on the mind and the heart and the body. Sometimes there's a lot of energy that can come. It's not always that way. And sometimes that's, uh, we didn't realize how quiet the mind may have gotten. Because in the thick of it, it just seems like a mess at times, but then we get this, this reality check when we start to uh, re-engage in that way. But it's a good thing to do. You have to do it sooner or later. Always seems like kind of a shame. <laughs> How much of it is actually useful? <laughs> Some. Hmm. If you uh, looked at the IMS website, maybe when you registered, read about this retreat, and this part of the retreat is called an insight meditation retreat there, I looked, that's what it says. And uh, IMS, that stands for Insight Meditation Society. And you know, if you hang around places like this, go to retreats at uh, places like this, you hear the word insight quite a lot. This mindfulness practice is often called insight meditation. That's one way you name what we've been doing here for the last 10 days. You might wonder what, what, is, this, what is this insight? You know, it's, it's a common enough word. It gets used quite a bit in, uh, in the English language. I, there's a car called an insight. My brother has one. <laughs> One of the older little funny ones. There are two definitions of this word in the, in the uh, I think it's the Merriam-Webster dictionary that uh, actually some useful considerations in these definitions. The first one uh, definition of insight is the power or act of seeing into a situation and a kind of penetration. And the second definition is the act or result of apprehending the inner nature of things, or of seeing intuitively. There's a lot there, you know, that directly applies to our meditation practice, doesn't it? You know, we do start to see into the situation, that first definition. There is a kind of penetrating below the surface of things. And we're interested in apprehending the inner nature of life. And it is an intuitive kind of seeing. So it's a good word to describe our practice. You know, we want to see into the nature of things below the surface appearance in this exploration of our mind, body, heart. That's what we want to do. But we still might wonder, well, what is this I'm supposed to be seeing? You know, this inner nature, this, this, intuitive seeing into what, you know? What is this inner nature of things? And our experience of something we might call insight is different in different times. At different times, you could say that it happens 
in a way on different levels, although that's not exactly the perfect way to describe it. But we do see this in different ways as our practice unfolds. And there are times when, when we have insight, we start to see into um, some old patterns of conditioning in our mind and our heart. You know, a deeply entrenched mental pattern, for example. Habitual ways that we tend to react in certain situations and we start to have some insight into that, into perhaps, say, the nature of our fears, when and how they arise, why they come. And we start to unravel something in our relationship there. We touch into aspects of our emotional life in practice. Maybe we uncover places where we felt numb or blocked. It starts to open up. We feel there's an insight into that. Some way that we've historically felt we've been unable to connect with some part of our experience, some part of our life. And these kinds of of understandings, these glimpses, these insights can be very powerful. They come. You know, we get to know our inner world, the inner terrain of our mind and heart more and more intimately. There's more clarity there. We see how our conditioning operates, how it functions, ways that we get caught up in aspects of our emotional, mental world. We start to touch places of freedom there in relation to it. There's space and ease that begins to open up in our heart and mind. And as I said, it can be very powerful and, and it's, in many ways it's such an essential aspect of, of a healthy life, you could say, of a whole life, an integrated life. And a lot of this kind of insight has to do with different aspects of what's personal to us. You could say our personal psychology, if you want to use that word. Our inner world, what's happening there that's personal to each one of us. We start seeing into it and and there's this opening up in there, this space that gets created. We start undoing through seeing them, through seeing these habits of mind, these patterns we start to see how they've driven our lives and they start to loosen up. We start to understand the forces that operate in our particular personal life, our own inner world. And there's another aspect of insight which is in no way separate from this, what's personal. But it touches also on more universal kinds of understandings And it goes to the very heart of the practice. And it's an insight that touches that which is common to all of us. It's an intuitive seeing, this intuitive seeing and that definition of the word insight into what you could say are the subtle universal qualities, the universal nature of of all experience. Has nothing to do with what's personal to any one of us. And it's an insight which both transcends what's personal and very directly informs it. And this is the kind of insight that the Buddha was pointing to. And the simplest way to see this is that we start very directly to experience what are called the three universal or common characteristics of all of life, of all experience. And we've been talking about these in different ways the whole time. We start seeing into the, these universal truths of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, and of a corelessness, or not-self. Anicca, dukkha, anatta, the Pali words. And you know, as I said, in various ways, this is pretty much what we've been talking about the whole time here for this last 10 days. In a book called In This Very Life, the Burmese meditation master Saida Upandita elaborates um, 
in there in one place. He has an elaboration of uh, the definition of the word vipassana, vipassana, which usually gets translated as inside meditation. And we've spoken about it in different ways in terms of the nature of things. And he speaks about it in a particular way in this uh, one place in that book that sheds some light on uh, the understandings of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, how these uh, manifest, this insight into these manifests in our practice. And he says this, the word word vipassana has two parts, vi and pasana. Vi refers to various modes, and pasana is seeing. Thus, one meaning of vipassana is seeing through various modes. This is one way you can define that word. These various modes, of course, are those of impermanence, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, stress, whatever word you want to use for dukkha. Impermanent suffering and absence of self. A more complete translation of vipassana now becomes seeing through the modes of impermanence, suffering, and absence of self. So in essence, what, what happens in this process is that we, you could say that we start to look at our experience through the lenses of these three universal characteristics, these three common characteristics. It's like a lens that we look through. But it's not really that we put it up there and look through it. It's, it's a, an organic process. It happens by itself. And this insight on this level has the potential to really liberate our mind and hearts and directly informs that which is personal to each one of us and liberates in that way too. And the whole path of our practice is really an ever-deepening relationship, deepening of our understanding of these truths of change, of the unreliable core, the unreliable inherently unsatisfying nature of things and their coreless, not-self nature. And as we open more and more to this truth of change, the truth of impermanence, we see that our bodies, our minds, all things are in a state of constant change. All experience is in a state of constant flux and flow. It's just its nature. Nothing lasts for very long. And we start to see that there's nothing in that because it's constantly changing, because it's impermanent. We can't hold on to any thing there as a source of lasting happiness or satisfaction because it just doesn't last. Even the most pleasant, beautiful, enlightened moment doesn't last. They, they will never serve as a lasting source of happiness or peace. There's this inherently unsatisfactory or insecure quality there, this liability to suffering, you could say, because they're impermanent, whether it's a pleasant or unpleasant experience. <clears throat> and so opening to this truth leads to a kind of deconditioning, you could say, of of grasping, of clinging, of this tendency to hold on, to try to hold on, like holding on to moving water, holding on to sand, flows through the fingers. It deconditions that tendency because we feel the stress there, the suffering there, and there's a natural inclination to let go. The mind, the heart is inclined towards letting go of it, letting go in this way. You know, it's like letting go of a, of a hot burning coal that we didn't realize we were holding on to. And then when we realize it, we let it go. And we also start to directly touch this coreless, conditioned nature of all things. This uncontrollable aspect. In a way, this is the most radical and potentially the most transforming understanding that the the Buddha was pointing to in his teaching. We start to see directly in our experience that nothing in this flow is amenable to our will. 
right? We can't make things be the way we want them to be through an act of will or, or through wishing that they would be that way. You know, let me have only pleasant feelings in this body. Let me have only peaceful thoughts and beautiful mind states or, or let me have no thoughts at all. You know, it doesn't work. You know, maybe we're holding out some hope that we'll figure out how to do that, but, but it doesn't work. And we see that, okay, the experience is just this shifting flow of causes and effects, causes, conditions coming together, falling apart over and over. And there's no one to whom it's happening. There's no one controlling it. It's just unfolding lawfully, causes, conditions unfolding lawfully. It's just nature. It's just nature doing its thing. Someone, I think this may have come from Ajahn Chah. It seems like it has an Ajahn Chah kind of tone, but I have never been able to find out where this came from. But some wise being, in my point of view, (laughs) once said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And that's, in a sense, that's all we're doing here. We're just giving it back to nature. We're just coming into alignment with a natural process. With the truth of things as they really are. And there's this deep relaxation that happens as this process unfolds. You know, we, we lay down this great burden of, ha- of hauling around that which we mistakenly appropriated as our own. We let that go. And through this process, we start to touch a freedom that does not depend on the conditions of our life being any particular way. It's an unconditioned kind of ease or peace or freedom. And through that process, we start to see that this path has the potential to lead us to the deepest possible kind of peace, complete freedom from suffering. And the peace and freedom, the fruit of the Buddha's awakening, what he was always pointing at, the moon that he always wanted us to see. Look there. But then we still, we may wonder, well, what is this freedom? What is the quality? What is the manifestation? How is this? What's the experience of this? This deep freedom we keep going on about. And it's talked about in many different ways. One very simple way it's described is, I'll read one short quotation, one sentence, sentence. Extinction of greed, extinction of hate, extinction of delusion. This is called Nibbana, the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. In essence, you would say, if these forces no longer hold sway over the mind, over the heart, if they're no longer running the show, then there's this deep peace, this Nibbana. And we can look. We can look in any moment and see what's running the show. It's just, it's just cause and effect. Sometimes greed is running the show. Sometimes aversion is running the show. Sometimes wisdom and love. We just see, oh, what's happening there? Sometimes delusion, confusion. Sometimes suffering is what's there. And, and relation to that is running things. This word nibbana, there's there's a literal trans. There's a couple of translations of it. It actually was a common enough word in Pali at that time of the Buddha. One uh, way it's defined, it's um, means to to cease blowing or to go out, a kind of going out. It's been likened to a fire that goes out when the fuel is exhausted or removed and the fuel is taken away and and it goes out. 
there's something quite useful in this description if we think of, of this realization of um, that greed, hatred, and delusion, these energies are no longer holding sway over the mind. It's like if, they're, if the fires of those are not, no longer being fed, they go out. They just go out. There's no source. There's no fuel. Nothing is feeding them. Another place I read that this word was also used to describe uh, something cooling down, like, like if you take a pot of rice off the fire, you, you let it nibbana enough that it, you can eat it. The cooling down of it. Let the rice nibbana for five minutes. <laughs> but again, it's the same thing. The unbinding of the fire element, the f- unbinding of the heat there. The, f- the heat is taken away and it nibbana's on its own. Here's another definition. If craving, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at his own ruin nor at the ruin of others, nor at, the, nor at the ruin of both, and so experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Immediate, inviting, attractive. I mean, do we even hold this as a possibility? And what would it be like if these energies weren't present if they didn't arise in the mind stream, or if they did arise, they had absolutely no power at all in our mind and our heart. And do we hold this as even a possibility? And we can make the mistake of thinking that this kind of freedom is, is something far off, you know, way out there somewhere, you know, in a, a few eons of lifetimes, if we're lucky. But, you know, if we look at our own experience, if we actually look there, there are times when we get a taste of this peace, this freedom. You know, there may be brief moments, but there are moments when these energies are not present in the mind stream. And it's just the flow of experience and the knowing of it. And there's no reactivity. There's nothing, mind is not moved in relation to that. And you can, we can maybe imagine that kind of quality of mind-heart in the midst of daily life, right? You know, while we're going shopping or doing the laundry. Visible in this very life, attractive, inviting. And I think we sometimes imagine enlightenment as, as this experience where we're, we'll, maybe we'll float away or we'll dissolve into a mist of white light. But, you know, the Buddha didn't dissolve and float away. You know, he still lived his life. He had to go on alms round every day to get his food. He, he would woke up with a stiff back sometimes and he had to deal with difficult people and situations he probably would have preferred to avoid. And Buddha taught liberation through non-clinging. And it doesn't matter what we don't cling to or when we don't cling. You know, and the truths of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness, the truth, truths of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, these are universal truths. They're always true. Nibbana is an aspect of reality. It's always the truth. It's always here. You know, we, they don't come into being while we're on retreat so that we have the chance to realize them. So that we can have insight into them. You know, this, this insight, this liberating insight can come at any time. Even in the midst of mundane daily life activities. I want to read uh, two or three poems from a collection uh, called the Terigata. There are a couple of collections. They're small, um, small uh, texts in the Pali Canon. 
Uh, one is called the Teragata, one is the Terigata. And the word Tera, like this tradition, is Teravada. Tera means elder. Vada means like way, way of, way of the elders. Goes to the oldest sources that we have of, of what the Buddha taught in the early days. And so Teri is a feminine, Tera masculine. And Gata means a verse or a poem, a verse. So the Terigata is verses of the, the, the ah, nuns uh, who were around at the time of the Buddha, his disciples. I'll read a couple of poems there. I love them. They're beautiful and simple. And um, they point to something very direct in our own. They relate directly to our own practice. This is from a nun named Patachara. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell. I checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. It was turning off the lights. That was the moment of the awakening there. You know, taking your shower and then going to bed. Here's another poem by a nun named Mitakali. Although I left home for no home, it's the the way it's described going in from home to homelessness, this renunciate life of the nuns and monks. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way, my passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short, age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up and my mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. I mean, this is our practice. And in both of these poems, you know, they were saying, things are not going so well. (laughs) A fever of longing controls me. And then, you know, watching the elements of mind and body rise and fall. That's what we've been doing the whole time. Same deal. And then I stood up. My mind was freed. I'll read one more. This is from uh, Vadesi. It was 25 years since I left home and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Read that one again. Okay, that's, she ordained, it was 25 years since I left home, since I took up the practice in real earnest. (laughs) And I hadn't had a moment's peace, uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure. I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust, and she taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure. I know the minds of others. I have great powers and have annihilated all the obsessions of mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. Twenty-five years, a complete train wreck. 
And, and then there's this awakening there. You know, we think nothing's been happening, but we don't know. Someone once likened the practice to filling a, a big earthen jar that has a narrow neck, right? And, and we're putting in drops of mindfulness, like drops of water. And we don't see how full it's getting. It looks pretty much the same, whether there's a little pool in the bottom or it's almost full. And we don't know. We can fall into a a way of holding our practice where we separate practice and life in some way. You hear this in people's voice, well, in my life. So this is, I don't know what this is if it's not life. We think practice is, is when we're sitting formally or time on retreat. We've, we've spoken a lot about this idea of holding the practice, seeing the practice as the ripening of, of the paramis, these beautiful qualities. Spoken about this more than once. Virtue and renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, and so on. And you know, if we look at the totality of our life, just say how we spend our time over the course of a year, you know, mostly we're not on retreat. Mostly we're not sitting in meditation, right? You know, we can, we can take a, the bulk of our life and put it outside the realm of practice if we say that it's only these formal times. And, you know, if we think of the spiritual life in terms of ripening of these good, beautiful qualities, it really um, expands the breadth of what we would call practice. It's an important uh, way we might reflect so that we see more the truth that practice is life, life is practice. These things are not separate. <clears throat> there are five contemplations that the Buddha recommended for everyone, whether a lay woman or a lay man or, or one gone forth into homelessness as a nun or a monk. Good. He said these are good for everyone to reflect on. And, and I think reflecting on these really are, they can serve as a, another reminder of um, the way that life is, is practice, that practice is life. They can um, help to keep our practice alive in the midst of daily activities, which is hard at times. So I'll read these five reflections. I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different, separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, and live dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I may do for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. Now this might not sound like, you know, a really cheery list of (laughs) things to reflect on. (laughs) You know, we might kind of say, no thanks. You know, some resistance. You know, we all know we're going to get old and sick and die eventually. You know, we know you can't take it with you, which is that fourth one. Fifth one is reflection on the understanding of kamma, that actions bear results according to their nature. And, you know, we kind of think, well, I don't know. Why would you dwell on dreary subjects like this? You know, why not focus on enjoying life while we can? You know, a lot of these are take us directly to into contact with the truth of impermanence aging, illness, death, growing different. And you know, we don't mind checking out impermanence in the world out there around us, but these reflections, you know, this is getting close to home. And we can think, well, life's hard enough without dwelling on morbid subjects, you know. And sometimes if we're young and we hear this, we're, we fear that it's going to rob us of some quality of vitality or sense of wonder and possibility. You know, our whole life is ahead of us. I don't want to think about these dreary subjects. 
And, you know, the point of these contemplations is not to make us feel bad or create a sense of resignation in, in the face of uh, the inevitable powerlessness, in the face of what's inevitable. And we may fear that reflecting on these will be depressing, but we actually find that the opposite <coughs> proves to be true. And that if there is a way that maybe unconsciously there are fears, unacknowledged fears around these subjects of, say, death, aging, infirmity, by coming face to face with them, we can start to undo the conditioning around them. We bring them to the surface. We start to feel these things. They start to unbind. They don't weigh heavily so more. There's light, more lightness and ease in our lives as a result of that. A Thai forest monk named Ajahn Lee Damodaro said this, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. Now that's an interesting way, see them in that light. And the power of these five reflections is that they, they let us take a stand on reality. We stand on the truth of the way things really are. I'll talk about the first three and really just one of those. I don't have, could give a long talk, many talks on each of these subjects. But aging, sickness, and ultimately death, this is just a natural, inevitable part. It's an organic part of a life. It's true for everyone. It was true for the Buddha. This is a short teaching called the Jara Sutta. Jara is the Pali word for old age or aging. I have heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the Eastern Monastery, near the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the Western sun. Then Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to him, began massaging the Blessed One's limbs with his hand and he said, It's amazing, Lord. It's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled. His back <laughs> bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, in the faculty of the eye, the faculty of the ear, of the nose, of the tongue and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back is bent forward. And there is a discernible change in the faculties of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. <laughs> it's so great. You know? The Buddha's getting old. It's a cold winter's day. He comes out of his hut. He's getting some sun. We all sit in the sun. It feels good. The kindly Ananda, his cousin and attendant, starts giving him a back rub. Blessed one, dude, man, we got old. <laughs> Look, this happened. Yes. A discernible change in the faculties. <laughs> You know, and, and growing old is not easy. No matter how good our circumstances and our health are. I took care, my sister and I had a lot to do with taking care of my parents. So they were aging before they died. And they had pretty good circumstances in many ways, but it was not easy aging. It's not easy and we like we don't like to think about it. We tend to avoid the subject, you know, and we see life as something that's happening now and, and these things of aging and death, they're going to happen somewhere down the road, hopefully down a long road. And there's a kind of, I don't know, it's almost an unconscious arrogance there. You know, it's happening to someone else and we'll deal with it later when the time comes. And, you know, our society glorifies youth and youthfulness so much. You know, we, put, we put youth on a pedestal as though 
as though we're not supposed to get old. And there's this huge industry that caters to, that promotes a kind of cult of youth, in this country at least. You know, it's as though aging is evidence of personal failure or, or a reflection of bad taste. That's <laughs> how it's kind of it's presented that way. You know, it's though, you know, and all these creams and lotions and things that promise that we'll stay young forever, you know, and all the things we do to try to stay looking young and you know, it's all trying to convince us that we don't have to grow old. You know, and does it work? You know, it, not very well and not for very long. And this is not to say that we shouldn't take care of ourselves. It only makes sense to try our best to stay healthy. You know, and, and good health is an incredible blessing. And anyone who has struggled with their health knows this only too well. What a blessing good health is. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with trying to look our best. It's not the point. But to live as though aging is optional or avoidable shows an impressive capacity for denial, which is um, culturally we're really good at. <laughs> you know, and so if growing old is evidence of, of personal failure or bad taste, then dying is the ultimate example of this. <laughs> The ultimate in bad taste is to die. You know, I mean, this is truly a failure. You know, and it's unbelievable how it is. We hold it like this. You know, we hide death and dying away. We don't want to look at it. We we sanitize bodies in, in these funeral parlors and make them look attractive and alive as though as though they're just taking a nap. You know, and this fear of death is subtle, but it's pervasive. And we spend so much energy trying to keep it out of our consciousness. And so reflections like these five reflections, say I'm talking now about the reflection on aging. I'm subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. One thing that they can do for us is they awaken in us uh, a sense of how precious life is. They connect us with a spirit of what's called samvega in Pali. The word samvega gets translated as spiritual urgency. And I know as I've grown older, the, my perception of the passage of time has, seems to have sped up. You know, I remember when I was a kid, summer vacation seemed to last forever. And now a year has gone like this. You know, we turn around, another year has gone by. And that perception is not a fixed thing, of course. And, you know, a single meditation period that's difficult can seem like an eternity. And then, you know, a year goes by in an instant. The feeling, where did the last year go? Where did the last 10 days, where did that go? It's gone. So one way we can connect to this quality of spiritual urgency, this samvega, we connect with our own mortality directly. And this truth of the fragility, the brevity of life, not in a morbid way, but in a way where we touch this, the beauty and the preciousness of a life. We want to make the best use of our time, use it the best way we can. We examine our life from the perspective of asking what matters, what's worth doing. So we might bring one or more of these reflections to mind on occasion from time to time. Some people reflect on them daily. So this, I am subject to aging, I've not gone beyond aging. Now we know the truth of this, it's intellectually. But connecting this with us directly puts us in touch with impermanence. And, you know, we, we like to see it out in the woods, and trees dying and new trees coming, and oh, it's great, it's natural, it's beautiful. But then, you know, when it comes to this body, it's not so cool. It's not so beautiful, you know. You look in the mirror, the hair's getting gray. There's a discernible change in the faculties. <laughs> you know, my forehead is expanding daily. You know, I've got this, it's getting thin in back here. I can't see it too well from the front, but when I get my hair cut, they hold the mirror up there. <laughs> oh! <laughs> you know, it's like, 
We deny the, I, for so long it was like, oh, it's just a cowlick. <laughs> it, it's always kind of been that way, I think. You know, I don't want to see it. You know, we want to exempt ourselves. We, you know, we start getting called sir or ma'am at the store at a certain point. <laughs> Not good. I went to visit a friend of mine, who's one of my former business partners, who's uh, quite a bit younger. She has young kids. They were quite young at this time. A few years ago, they were, I don't know, preschool, kindergarten age, maybe. And I went up to the door and, and knocked, and you know, the curtain pulled aside, and I heard this little voice, twin little girls, "Mom, there's an old man at the door." <laughs> Whoa, okay. <laughs> I didn't like that. <laughs> you know, I recently, you know, you go to the grocery store and someone says, can I help you out with your groceries? You know, and maybe they've been told to offer that to anyone, but it just doesn't feel good. And our self-image starts to suffer, you know. And I try to take care of myself, you know, and I exercise when I can, and I try to watch my diet to some extent. And so I've decided I'm okay with being middle-aged as long as I get to be a youthfully middle-aged man, you know. These self-images we create, you know, they're, they're inherently problematic. But, because they just, they take a lot of maintenance, don't they? You know, we have to constantly shore them up or adjust them. You know, something happens, our image is shaken. Mom, there's an old man at the door. If someone says, we go out on the bus, oh, here, to have my seat. That has happened too, you know. It's like, you know, I'm supposed to offer my seat, not someone offer it to me, <laughs> you know. So our usual strategy is to adjust it a little bit, you know, like me deciding I'm okay with being middle-aged. But, you know, our practice is about going beyond all images. You know, it's a good idea to plan for when we get older, for our old age, and, and our worries about aging may be have some value in that regard. But fear and suffering, suffering in regard to this truth of things is not, doesn't have to be there. It's not an inherent part of that. So maybe we can come to terms with our body aging, but what about our mind? You know, minds are subject to aging as well, aren't they? You know, and maybe we can see, well, yes, my practice, mindfulness, you know, this is going to really serve me as I age and deal with the changes of bodily life and this natural process. And as I come to the end of my life, you know, and mindfulness will be there for me when I come to the end of my life. You know, and we can say, you know, as long as we can be mindful, stay alert, bring this there. But what if the mind ceases to function well? You know, what if our ability to be mindful starts to slip away? You know, I, I'm, I'll be 57 in a couple of weeks, and I'm, I notice one of the diminishing faculties is the power of memory. You know, if I don't write it down, pretty much forget it. This is a poem by Billy Collins called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, (laughs) never even heard of, as if, one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye, and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. (laughs) And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps. The address of an uncle. The capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue. (laughs) It's not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall. (laughs) Well on your way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night 
to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. You know, my mom, I mentioned I, my sister and I had been taking care of my parents before they died. And um, she had fairly severe dementia in her last couple of years of her life. And there were a lot of confusion. You know, the short-term memory was pretty much shot. I know many of you uh, know someone or have a family member where this may be the case. You know, we have the same conversations over and over and over. You know, and I take after my mom more than my dad. And maybe this is coming for me, you know. Maybe it's hereditary, I don't know. We have a lot of fear in our culture about this, you know. We tend to fear the loss of our mental abilities far more than, than uh, the decay of the physical body. There was a very, very beloved, well-known monk named Mahagosananda. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a Cambodian monk. And uh, he lived his last years um, near here, actually, less than an hour away at a small Cambodian monastery here in Massachusetts. He, was, um, he had a title called the Sangha Raja of Cambodia. It means king of the Sangha. A very beautiful, honorific title. And he was nominated five times for the Nobel Peace Prize for... Um, uh, a lot of work around the banning of landmines, and he would lead these marches through parts of Cambodia where a lot of these mines were there and had caused such harm in the population. He was a beautiful, fine being who I had um, the great good fortune to meet and to visit on occasions. There's a beautiful photograph I saw somewhere, I think, there's a copy of it in, in, at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center. It's uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and, and Mahagosananda. They're bowing. Each one is bowing to the other. And they're, they're over horizontal. They're each trying to get lower. <laughs> each one trying to show the greater respect. And uh, as I said, I had the chance to, to uh, visit him at different times. And in his later years, he, he had... Um, Maybe it was Alzheimer's disease, but his, his mental faculties were uh, diminished quite a lot. His many ways, his capacities had gone down. One of the, the last times I saw him, and, and I, I wasn't a friend of his. I was just a guy who would show up to pay respects sometimes. And, uh, but I went to see him, and, and he was in his room there. And the, someone said, oh, you can go in and say hello in his room. And, and so I went in and paid respects. And, and he started taking things off of his shelves, you know, a bar of soap and a, a box of crackers, or things that were on, on a shelf in his room and giving, them, giving me these presents. And he had this incredible smile on his face, just beaming. And, um, you know, the whole room, it was like the whole room was um, lighted up with, the power of, of his metta was palpable there. And he was very childlike then. He didn't speak. He no longer was really speaking. But being in his presence was like being bathed in love and light. We've uh, quoted the, the famous Indian saint, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, uh, quite a bit in this retreat. And I read a story about him once. Um, he lived in Mumbai, in Bombay, in India. And he, he taught until he was quite elderly, way into his 80s. And uh, at some point, uh, one of his uh, students asked him what it was like to be an old yogi. And he said, Oh, I just watch senility come in. I see the memory decompose on almost a daily basis. And he roared with laughter. <laughs> You know, and so I think, well, maybe he was pointing to something, you could say, larger, something beyond the thinking mind, something that has the capacity to observe the whole thing, even as this cognitive processes start to deteriorate. You know, and we, maybe we've all had some indication of this possibility in our practice. You know, 
we see the arising and passing of thoughts. There's an awareness of that, of all kinds of mental activity. We see that arise and pass away. What, what knows the arising and passing of a thought? We can even see the arising and passing of consciousness. Contact consciousness. We can see that. We can get that subtle in practice. What is it that knows that? You know, there's an aspect of awareness that you could say is larger or deeper than the thinking mind. And in a way, as our practice unfolds, we connect with this awareness more and more intimately, more and more often. And this kind of pure awareness, it's not affected by anything. You know, it's likened to, sometimes it's likened to the sky or open space. All things appear in it, but it's not affected by anything. It remains pure. Aging, illness, and death may arise. Maybe this awareness can remain unperturbed by any of that. Another Thai forest monk named Ajahn Fuang Jyotiko. There's a quotation I'd like to read from a a small book called Awareness Itself. It speaks to this quality of, of of awareness. He said, you have to keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions, of the conventions it holds to be true. So you just focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away. And eventually you will reach your true refuge within. The basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate true refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. So I'll just read, uh, to end uh, this talk tonight, um, a short excerpt from a longer um, piece of writing called The View and Meditation of the Great Perfection by the first Jamgon Kontrul Rinpoche. Present moment awareness is empty, open, and luminous, not a concrete substance, yet not nothing. Empty yet it is perfectly cognizant, lucid, aware. Emptiness and knowing are inseparable. They are formless as if nothing whatsoever, ungraspable, unborn, undying, yet spacious, vivid, buoyant. Nothing whatsoever, yet emaho, everything is magically experienced. Simply recognize this, cultivate nothing else. There is nothing else to do or to undo. Let it remain naturally. Don't spoil it by manipulating, by controlling, by tampering with it, worrying about whether you are right or wrong or having a good meditation or a bad meditation. Just leave it as it is and rest your weary heart and mind. So we can uh, just keep sitting quietly for another minute or so and then I'll ring the bell. Thank you for listening this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.